Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. As humans, we're not some disembodied spirits that just float around, right? We have bodies. Our bodies are an essential part of our personal identity. And so the bodily connections that we have to other people matter. They deeply shape who we are. They deeply shape our identity, our understanding of ourselves, and they are the source of important personal ties between people. And, you know, one of the deepest of those is the parent-child relationship. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. I'm Dr. Mariana Orlandi, Associate Director of the Institute, and I have the pleasure today of welcoming back Dr. Melissa Moschella, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the Catholic University of America and McDonald Distinguished Fellow in the Center for the Study of Law and Religion at Emory University School of Law and Fellow of our very own Austin Institute. Good morning, Melissa. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be back. How are you? Doing great. Thank you. Enjoying the end of the school year, beginning of summer. Yeah, I imagine. And you're in D.C. right now? Yes. I know you're giving talks everywhere, though, especially in this time of the year. And I know that recently you were in Chicago. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, it was a conference organized by the Religious Freedom Institute and co-sponsored by University of Chicago Divinity School, a really interesting interfaith conference on the virtues where we had panels, each of which had a Jewish scholar, a Muslim scholar and a Christian scholar talking about a particular virtue from the perspective of their own tradition and explaining how that virtue can be helpful or is extremely important for overcoming our current political and cultural polarization. No, that sounds amazing. Which one was your virtue? Did you have? I got to talk about the virtue of humility. Okay. You're booked for our next, <laughs> next time then we're going to talk. Yes, about- lots of takeaways for the current culture with that virtue. That's for sure. <laughs> I mean, as, as a personal thing, I would like to ask you about false humility. That could Oh, also- yes. Oh, okay, great. That's a huge problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So awesome. awesome. Lots of people misunderstand humility. It's not what you think. We'll leave that out there for the next podcast. Yeah, because I could get started about the relation with facility. <laughs> yes. Okay, no, let's drop it there. You've been giving a lot of talks also, after our previous podcast, and based on your articles on the morality of COVID vaccines. Right. So you're an expert in several things. I would still, though, recommend not either vaccination or not. That's, you know, private issues. But certainly I would recommend the episode that we recorded with you about the morality of COVID vaccines and the way they were produced and developed. We might not be done with that issue and talking about vaccines again, But starting today, if you agree from a broader topic that has been at the center of your scholarship and has been dear to you, and which is also the title of today's podcast, which is To Whom Do Children Belong? So you wrote a book about this very topic in 2016. And before we talk about, you know, these questions as to whom do children belong, I would like to know why did you become interested in this very topic? Why did you write this book? Well, I started becoming interested in this topic because I was doing a seminar in graduate school and we read a couple of books that were basically against the notion of parental rights or had only a very extremely limited idea that parents have the right to direct the education and upbringing of their children. The books were arguing for a much more aggressive state role 
in determining the content of education. You know, they were opposed to homeschooling. They wanted a lot more regulation of private schooling. They wanted very controversial diversity education curricula and things like that. And I thought, well, that's putting things backward, right? It's the parents who are in charge of the upbringing of their children, not the state. The state can help, obviously. The state has an interest, but the parents are the ones who are primarily responsible. And so I read those books and I thought that we need to have a good counterargument to this. Surely somebody must have written about this. And, and there were some things out there, but nobody had really tackled the question from a foundational perspective. You know, why are parents the primary educators of their children? not just as a matter of law or a custom or pragmatic considerations about who is most likely to be most motivated to take care of children, but as a fundamental moral matter. Why is it that parents are the ones with the strongest obligation and a corresponding authority to make decisions on behalf of their children? So from a moral and philosophical perspective, you found that the reason, so basically the, the ratio legis for parental rights being granted to parents was missing from the pictures. It wasn't clear to the people writing, so why was that the case? So, well, because you're the expert on it, I would like to hear from you, what is the philosophical grounding for that? Why do children belong to parents? Because, I mean, at this time and age, we also know, right, that there can be abusive families, Mm -hmm. there can be crazy parents. So why is that? Yeah, well, first to clarify the nature of the question. So obviously, when we talk about to whom do children belong, we're talking about belonging in a way that's very different from something like property. Obviously, children are people. Children aren't property. They don't belong to anybody in that sense. But by belonging, what I mean is, you know, what community do they primarily belong to? Who has primary responsibility for their well-being? And there are different contenders for that. Is it the family? Is it the broader political community, the state, the church, right? There are many people who kind of have an interest and a say in what happens to children. But the question is, who has the primary responsibility and the corresponding primary authority when there are disagreements about what's in the best interests of children, how children should be raised, how they should be educated? And I think the only way to really understand this is to go back to the very foundations of the parent-child relationship, which is in its focal case, the central case is the case of biological parents and the children that they, uh, that they conceive, right? Obviously, you know, this is not to say that adoptive parents don't have the same rights or are not important or are not true parents, but just to say, well, if we didn't have biological parents, there just wouldn't be any children at all, right? So obviously mm-hmm. that's the central case. And because if we're trying to understand why by nature parents have certain responsibilities and rights, rather than saying the state confers these responsibilities and rights on children, well, then you also need to go back to a kind of natural relationship, something that pre-exists the state or that exists independent of any particular political society. One way to frame this is to think, well, Okay, you know, say a woman gets pregnant, has a baby, delivers the baby. Why should she get to bring that baby home from the hospital? Yes. Right? I mean, we all presume that, right? We would all be shocked if, you know, we went in to deliver a baby at the hospital and they say, okay, go ahead, go home and you can fill out your paperwork for a parenting license and we'll decide whether or not to grant you a baby if you want one. But it doesn't have to be the one that's biologically related to you after all. Who cares, right? 
Yeah, Melissa, just because we live in a crazy time, I'm afraid that you're giving suggestion to some now crazy policymaker that will decide to do something like that. But Oh, well, those suggestions you- are all out there. They're okay. all out there. There are already articles proposing that we license all parents, basically that we treat all parents the way we treat adoptive parents and saying that the biological tie between parents and children doesn't matter at all. It's all just a matter of convention. Okay, so I think this is something our audience needs to hear. What, yeah, our audience, so, what our audience needs to know is that the reason we are having a conversation with you that states the obvious again, so why do children belong to their biological parents is because there are papers, you know, very highly academic, scholarly papers suggesting the opposite. So your work is still incredibly central and relevant. Right. And they're not just crazy philosophy papers in kind of out there journals. There are also papers by prominent legal scholars who are very influential in forming future judges and future lawyers, right? People who are going to be making decisions about parental rights in practice from the bench. And so it's important to understand, you know, why they're wrong when they say that parental rights are granted by the state, that parental rights are derivative of the state and that the state then basically can do what it wants when it disagrees with the way that parents are raising their their children. The idea that the state basically entrusts parents with the care of their children, which again is just backwards because it fails to recognize that the basis of parents' rights, their authority to make decisions on behalf of their children, is that they have a pre-existing relationship with their child and they have that relationship they would have it even if there were no political society at all, and they would have the responsibilities and the authority, even if they were on some desert island and there were no government. But the government has the obligation to respect that authority. So getting back to the question of why, right? Yes. Why, why do I get to bring my own baby home from the hospital? So the answer to that goes back to understanding that as humans, we're not some disembodied spirits that just float around, right? We have bodies. Our bodies are an essential part of our personal identity. And so the bodily connections that we have to other people matter. They deeply shape who we are. They deeply shape our identity, our understanding of ourselves. And they are the source of important personal ties between people. And, you know, one of the deepest of those is the parent-child relationship. It's the only relationship where the biological tie between me and my parents, the people who conceived me, right, is crucial to my identity. If I had been conceived by a different mom or a different dad, I wouldn't be me. I just wouldn't exist, right? I mean, that's the most radical kind of relationship that's possible, right? My parents are the biological cause of my existence and identity. And even if my biological parents don't raise me, there's still that link, that tie, because I still know, right? Once I get old enough to realize, oh, my adoptive parents aren't my real parents, you know, they are real parents, but they're not my biological parents, then naturally kids want to know, well, who are my biological parents? Where did I come from? Where did I get this trait or this, you know, aspect of my physical appearance? You know, what, what are these missing pieces of the puzzle to my identity that I can really only understand by understanding where I came from genetically, where I came from biologically? And so there is this very important link between parents and children that means that Ideally, the people who are best suited, everything else being equal, to raise a child are the child's biological parents because they're the only ones who can give that child the full picture of connection to their ancestry, connection to their biological aspect of their identity. And 
they're the ones who have the closest relationship to that child at the moment when the child comes into the world. And so that close relationship gives them the greatest obligation to look out for the well-being of the child. And in a way, this is kind of common sense, but these common sense things are often the hardest things to actually articulate and give an argument for because we just presume them to be true. Yeah. And what you're saying about the forgetfulness of the body inevitably reminds me of the conversation we hosted here with Professor Carter's Need and his book, you know, What It Means to Be Newman. Well, wonderful book. Yes, yes wonderful book. Absolutely. And the, you know, and again, the unencumbered self idea that doesn't exist and McIntyre, Bend and Rational Animals. But also, just last night, I was listening again to Christopher West talking about theology of the body. He argued that today's tendency to think that our gender is what we decided to be is actually linked to going back to, I think, therefore I am, the Kajdor Gosum. And then I think, therefore I am, whatever I want to be. So the first step being forgetfulness of the body, I think, therefore I am, therefore all that matters is my thought. And then my thought will also shape whatever I decide to be. And I... I don't know, do you see the link as much as I do that what you're saying now about parental rights sounds like it's very much related to this detachment of our mental self from my bodily self? Well, absolutely. Because if you see the self the way Descartes did, you know, as this kind of ghost in a machine, right? This thinking thing that just inhabits and drives around some organism, right? The body, but the body's not me. Right. If you think of yourself as independent in some sense, distinct from your body, well, then the biological tie doesn't matter at all. I mean, who cares? I mean, why not be raised by the most competent, the, the wealthiest, the most educated, the parents with the most resources? I mean, why have kids just stick with those who happen to be biologically connected? I mean, why does that matter? Right. If the body isn't you, these biological ties don't matter at all. But of course, they do matter to us. They matter deeply, right? I mean, they matter to parents, they matter to children. You look at donor-conceived children, for instance, right? Children conceived with the sperm of anonymous donors through artificial insemination or in vitro fertilization. And many of them complain that their right to know their biological parents, to know their ancestry, to have that piece of the puzzle of their identity, that that right has been violated due to particularly anonymous donor conception. And many European countries anonymous donor conception has been outlawed because of this movement on the part of now adult donor-conceived children fighting for their rights to know their heritage. And you look at it the other way around too. Why do prospective parents go through so much effort, for instance, to do IVF? And so much money in Uh, this country. And so much money and so on and so forth instead of adopting a child that already needs a home. Why? Because they want a genetically related child. If our bodies didn't matter to us, that would be completely absurd. You wouldn't be able to give an account of it. And I know that in your book, you present not only the philosophical arguments, but also the psychological and social scientific research that shows why children do belong to parents. Is there anything that you discovered that you were not expecting when you were writing this book? Like unexpected results of this research? No, that's a really interesting question. Nobody has asked me that before. I mean, if anything, I think as I was delving into it, I was almost surprised at just how strong the biological tie is, at how much it matters 
psychologically for the child and for the parent, but I think especially in a way for the child where you see, you know, even adopted children who, of course, grateful to be adopted and love their adoptive parents, but that nonetheless, there's this sense of something missing and they do want to know more about where they came from, about their birth parents. And also very interesting research, you know, it used to be that that people thought the way to do adoption was to do it closed with no ability for the child to have knowledge of or interaction with the biological parents ever. And they've now in more recent years come to see through research that that's actually not the best approach, that it's actually more helpful to have some version of an open adoption arrangement. Obviously, you have to do it in the right way to make sure that it's clear, you know, who the actual parents are that are raising the child and have authority and so on. But some version of open adoption where a child at the appropriate times and so on has the opportunity to know about and perhaps even meet or later on even develop a relationship with the biological parents. And what's so helpful about that in many cases is at first, the piece of you know personal identity that they come to understand who they are. Many express feeling just a sense of relief. Oh, that's where that trait came from. That's where I got my eyes. That's where I got my nose. And it might seem superficial, but because we're embodied, just understanding where our bodies came from, our body shape, our, our features, right? It's helpful to know where that came from. It gives us a sense of being connected, being normal, that there are other people like me, right? Even physically. But I think the deeper, more important psychological component of this that's so helpful and healing for adopted children is to know that, as is usually, not always, but usually the case with adoption, that it wasn't a matter that the parents who placed the child for adoption didn't care or had no concern for the child and just abandoned the child. But usually the decision to place a child for adoption is one where the the parent is making a sacrifice, really, that they would love to raise the child if they were in better circumstances, if they had the capacity to give the child a decent life, but they just can't, right? And so when children learn that, when they learn, oh, I wasn't abandoned, the decision to place me for adoption wasn't about abandonment, wasn't about lack of love, but instead was an act of love on the part of my biological parents. That's so healing for them because what adopted children most often suffer from psychologically and often can't even articulate because it's such a deep, threatening interior wound is the idea that their biological parents just didn't care about them. Yeah, just didn't love them. And that's such a deep wound that can really only be fully healed if they learn that that's not true. Obviously, it can be helped in part by knowing that you have other people who love you or understanding from a a faith perspective that ultimately God is the source of your existence and and God loves you. And so you weren't an accident, but humanly, right, that knowing that your biological parents love you is so key. Yeah, which is a problem that also comes, I mean, it comes to mind, it's also the same thing with children of divorce, right? So this deep-seated feeling that you were unwanted. I was also thinking that it's harder probably for parents to give a child. I know this might sound crazy, but it's probably easier for a woman to have an abortion trying to believe in self-deceit that she's not doing anything harmful, only getting rid of some cells in her mind. Of course, that's not what I think. Right. Rather than giving the child for adoption, because at that point you see the body and you know. So somehow I think that that's as weird as it is, it's a much harder choice that the one to... Right, or at least it, see, it seems like a harder choice in the moment. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it seems like abortion is the easy choice because it seems to just make the problem disappear. Go away, yeah. But of course it doesn't, 
because the woman, you know, still ultimately comes to terms with the reality that, no, that wasn't just a blob of tissue. That was my child. And that very often haunts women. Whereas oh, yeah. you know, the difficulty I mean, of getting I, I a child met... up for adoption sounds so hard, but then can be healing because you know, okay, but I, I gave the child the gift of life and I was able to then see the beauty that came out of this situation, see another loving couple who was seeking a child, have a child that, that they can raise and then, and, you know, see the child placed in a good situation that can be healing. Uh, yeah. And just anecdotally, but, you know, but, it, but it sounds harder in the short term. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking that anecdotally, I know a lot of success story and happy story about adoption and children, you know, being given, I don't know success story about abortions. No, and I've met a no. lot of women and I never heard anything good come out of it. So, no. But back to whom children belongs. So yes, in the, in the book you on wrote, a tangent, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it, it's okay. It's a conversation. So the book you wrote in 2016, and there you provided an, a principled case for expanding school choice and for granting exemptions when educational programs or regulations are threatening parents' ability to raise their children and lie with their values. And I guess this is all very central today where, I mean, I don't know how much this was widespread in 2016, but certainly we have the gender directives in, yes. in curriculum and critical race theory too now, right, just right. some states. So what are your thoughts in that area? Well, I mean, there's many, many reasons why we need to understand and defend parental rights, as you say, particularly in the current climate where it's not the way that it was when you know I'm not that old, but I mean I went to public school for high school and I had a great education in my public school, but things now are very different. In my health class, I don't really remember what they taught me, but you know, they taught me general biology and some things about the risks of sexually transmitted diseases and so forth, but you know, they're pretty pretty standard, nothing crazy. Now, when you have the directives, you know, if schools are following the, the directives that Biden signed into law with an executive order basically on his first day in office, right? So much for being a president for unity. It's just extremely divisive executive order that basically tells schools that they have to teach gender ideology, which means they have to teach children that gender is not a biological thing. Gender is based on how you feel and it can change at any time and it's a spectrum and it's not male and female. And so in health classes, for instance, children are encouraged not to refer to men and women because they don't really exist, right? So we're not allowed to talk about pregnant women anymore because anybody can become pregnant. So they're supposed to talk about pregnant people. You're not supposed to talk about men and women. You're supposed to talk about people who menstruate, people with vaginas, people with penises, because of course, according to this ideology, women can have penises, men can have vaginas, men can menstruate, men can become pregnant, which is of course completely anti-scientific. It's not real. It's not biology. But this is what children are being taught is very confusing. And You're how, being how old to experiment with these different identities. How old would children be? Well, it very much depends on the school. But these sorts of things are starting in elementary school. It becomes much more graphic and detailed as they get into middle school and then in high school. But you know, teaching that gender is a spectrum, that there really is no such thing as biological male and female, that could start you know, in preschool and kindergarten. So how do you envision the policy that in these cases gives parental choice? Because there is one thing to say, you know, the state cannot or should not have this kind of curriculum in school, but that depends on the people we vote for, right? So if we vote for people that are in favor of these things, then that's what we have to expect. But then how does the policy look for you if we recognize the parental authority? 
first of all, the, the parents should have a say about what's going on in the local public schools. And it's a problem if schools are pushing these curricula on children without any consultation with parents and without even informing parents that they're having, you know, a transgender speaker come and talk to the students and celebrate that lifestyle, for instance, or, you know, many other things uh, that they're doing in the schools or, you know, teaching students that gender is on a spectrum and encouraging them to kind of experiment on different levels or schools that have explicit policies that will allow children to be one gender at school, you know, to socially transition to the gender that they identify with while they're at school, they have a change of clothes, new name, new pronouns, all the while parents could be completely in the dark that the child is even having any struggles with their gender identity at all. So, I mean, these are the things that are happening. Those shouldn't be happening. That already, I think, is contrary to parental rights for schools to be pretending that education of children is primarily in their hands instead of thinking of schools as partners with the parents. And in addition to no we might even envision an opt-in option that, you know, if you want your children to take this kind of courses, you actually have to sign something saying, right. I right. decide. If you were going to teach it at all, which I think in this case, you, <laughs> I think you shouldn't at all. But with controversial things, yes, I think ideally it would be even an opt-in, not, but at least the the possibility for an opt-out. The problem is when you get to things that are curriculum-wide and also things like bathrooms and locker rooms and field trips and sports that are on the basis of the gender with which a child identifies instead of their biological sex, you get to a situation where you can't really have opt-in or opt-out. I mean, it's just permeating the whole environment of the school. And so there, I think that makes it even clearer why genuine school choice is needed. When you think about it, it actually doesn't make any sense that government-run schools should have a monopoly on public educational funding. After all, the point is to educate children. I mean, the, the public interest here is to make sure that children become sufficiently educated, that they can be responsible and self-sufficient adults. And there's no reason why the government-run schools should have a monopoly on funding when there are lots of other schools that might do that better and might do it in ways that are more in line with the values that parents are trying to pass on to their children, given that parents are the primary educators. Now, if the state was the primary educator, sure, it would make sense for the government to have a monopoly on funding. Exactly, exactly. But we just said no, because the closest relationship is to your parents. And you actually also call the family a spiritual womb. That's an expression I really liked. Yes, that comes from Thomas Aquinas, where he brings this up very, very briefly in a question, kind of debated question of his day was whether... Jewish children ought to be baptized Christian without the consent of their parents. And, you know, for somebody like Aquinas, that was a serious question, right? The idea being, you know, particularly at that time, many thought that eternal salvation was riding on explicitly, you know, having the, the sacrament of baptism. So it wasn't a small thing, you know, to answer that question. Or what if the child's going to die before they have a chance to convert? Shouldn't we do this? Right. It was, this was a, a difficult question, but he comes down very strongly saying that it is against natural justice to take a child away from the parents or to do anything to the child without the parent's consent. Amen. Because exactly, because the parents are the ones who have that primary authority and responsibility for the upbringing of their children. And he gives a very, very brief defense of this, where he basically says, just as it's natural for a child to be gestated within the physical womb of the biological mother, 
it's likewise natural for a child to be raised to full human maturity, right? To have complete human gestation to adulthood within the spiritual womb of the family, which is basically just an extension of the physical womb of the mother. That's and, and I think that just beautifully captures this idea that the authority that parents have over their children is pre-political. It's based on just like the fact that the right place for a child before birth is in the mother's womb. Likewise, the right place for a child until adulthood, until birth into the larger society as an adult, that the right place is the spiritual womb of the family. And it is a responsibility too, because I'm thinking, you know, during the gestational period inside the maternal womb, you can't drink, you need to be careful what right. you eat. And the same thing for parents, this spiritual womb needs to be nurtured. It needs to be maintained. It needs to be a comforting place for the child. So, because I, I want to preempt the comment that, you know, someone that disagrees with us could be making say, oh, but what about that abusive father? What about that? Well, those are exceptions. They're not going to disprove the rule. We're not saying that this rule doesn't have any exception. We're not of saying course. that the family right. is always better no matter what. There can be dysfunctional families, but that's why there is a responsibility in being a parent and maintaining this beautiful and protected place where your child can become that full human being that it was meant to be. We usually keep the promise of keeping these episodes shorter rather than longer, but I still want to ask you something that I think it's very relevant also for what you, you talked with us last time about the COVID vaccines. And for me, it's inevitable to now get to that question because right. what is happening is now these vaccines have been tested also for children. And I know universities have been requiring it. I'm not really sure what schools are doing for younger children, but what would you say there as a parent, how far can the state go in demanding these vaccinations? That's an interesting and difficult question because you do get to a scenario where you have a, a legitimate public health concern and it's not just a private concern. So, you know, you can think about policies related to children in two ways. One would be policies that are aimed at the well-being of the child directly, right? Where you could say the state is coercively intervening for the sake of the child's well-being, you know, as would occur, for instance, if the state takes the child away from parents that are seriously abusive, right? That's a policy that's about protecting the direct well-being of the child. And when it comes to those sorts of policies, I think the only time when the state can legitimately intervene coercively is basically abuse and neglect. So it's similar to, say, cases where the international community could rightfully intervene in the affairs of a sovereign state if they are engaging in you know, genocide or egregious human rights abuses. The international community could intervene on behalf of the population. But when it comes to, there's a second reason why legislation related to children might happen. And that would be for public reasons, not directly for the child's good, but for the public interest. And there you see, for instance, some regulations about education are about the public interest because the state needs to ensure that they have the next generation capable of continuing the project of self-government and maintaining the economy and so on. But when it comes to legislation for these kind of public goals, related to the upbringing of children, there the state should recognize that it needs to pursue those legitimate goals in ways that are respectful of the rights of parents. 
So then you have situations like the Wisconsin versus Yoder case of Amish mm-hmm. parents who wanted to end their children's formal schooling early to educate them in the Amish way of life. And the court, I think, rightfully recognized that there could be an exemption mm-hmm. from compulsory education laws in that case, right, to end the child's formal education two years early mm-hmm. and continue to educate them in different ways that are more suitable for the Amish way of life. Given that the Amish have a record of being law-abiding, peaceful, self-sustaining, it's clear that the education they're providing is sufficient for those public goals. And so the, the Amish could be exempted from that compulsory education law, even though it's not unreasonable in general to say that children should continue their formal education until age 16. And I think that the international relations analogy there would be something like things that the international community does to maintain the international order, international peace, and so mm-hmm. on and so forth where the interventions are not for the good of the population of that nation, but for the broader good of the global community. And when it comes to something like vaccination, the state's policies there are primarily about the good of the larger community. So mandates for vaccination make sense when it's necessary, when it's the only way to prevent the spread of a highly contagious disease I think I can see where this would go if we have vaccinations of things that have been out there for 20 years or 30 years. But I think that now the delicate problem some parents are facing would be, well, we're still unsure of, you know, how much this is required, how much this is needed for my children. We don't know exactly what's going to happen. Evolutionary biologists arguing, well, you know, children are not like adults. So they do not have the same course of reactions to medicines and we should keep an eye on it. I know this is a hot field, so I'm probably only asking you for your opinion on when is the scientific consensus enough for saying, well, now the state can decide and no more the parents? Right. Well, I think there are two things here. So one is the fact that particularly for young children, so we're talking about children younger than 12, the evidence seems to be, number one, that the incidence of serious coronavirus among children that young is extremely low. And secondly, that they are much less likely to transmit it to adults. So from that perspective, it seems that at least for children kind of under 12, it's not clear to me that there's sufficient evidence from a public health perspective that would require that they'd be vaccinated because the risk to them is small. The risk that they will start an outbreak among the larger population even if they get it, is extremely small. And if teachers can be vaccinated, the risk to them is extremely small. I mean, even in schools that have been open, where neither teachers nor students have been vaccinated, there's little to no evidence that there's typically spread from students to teachers. The cases of teachers getting it have actually generally been from the teachers themselves hanging out in the lunchroom or in the teacher's lounge or whatever, and transmitting it among themselves. There is not much evidence of student-to-teacher transmission from young children. So it's not clear that there's a serious enough, particularly given that we don't have great data on this. I mean, they're still doing experiments, of course, on the safety of the vaccines for children under 12. So particularly given the experimental nature and the lack of data. But even if we had clearer data that this was safe, for children under 12, I just don't think that the public health rationale 
for vaccinating children under 12 is strong enough. Now, parents, I think once there is an approval of the vaccines for children younger than that, parents, I think, should have the option. Yeah, exactly. Free to decide for their children because exactly. they are. But I don't think that there's a strong enough rationale for for mandating. For mandating. There's a difference from diseases like, say, smallpox or rubella or measles and mumps, things that are highly contagious that affect children very seriously, where serious yeah. childhood illness and serious contagion among children in school is a huge issue. Yeah. And thank God we have those vaccines. Thank God, you know, don't have the disease. But anymore. COVID does not seem to be an illness that seriously afflicts young children unless they have, you know, particular conditions or susceptibilities. But then I think it's up to the parents to say, okay, well, for my child, this makes sense. I don't believe we have any reason to think that they will be especially risky for children, that the vaccines themselves will be especially risky for children, because the way that the vaccines work is basically the same as the way that vaccines that children are currently receiving work. So the kind of methodology of the vaccines is similar, meaning that it seems likely that there will not be a high risk of any serious negative side effects for children. But I think the broader question is, is there a strong enough public health reason to mandate this? And I think the answer to that for young children, at least, is no. Yeah, and on a, if you want funny note, I would say it's still worth arguing, you know, and fighting for parental rights and parental authority over the children before the state, unless there are yes. prevailing public interests. Because I was only thinking, you know, if many things become mandated by the state in this country, you can still do homeschooling. But this right. is not the case in many European countries, you know. No, unfortunately not. No. Not only where it's illegal, but also where it's just extremely difficult to respect right. all the guidelines. And I just, you know, and here is so common, and but it is common because there's always been a very powerful advocacy for parental rights and the yes. freedom of parents to educate their children. Well, Melissa, I just can only recommend your book, even though it was written five years ago, but all the topics you discussed are still very central today. And I want to thank you again for your time on our podcast. You promise now that you have to come back to talk about humility. Okay. Uh, or or I made do. you or I made your promise now if you didn't say it before. So thank you very much again. And we hope to see you also soon at the Austin Institute in person. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.